Hello, this is Rebecca Fleetwood Hessian, host of the Badass Women's Council podcast. And I know we're not supposed to play favorites, but y'all, this podcast might be my favorite one I've ever recorded. Carol Sanford is the coolest freaking badass I think I've ever talked to. And the topics that we cover today are just so rich and broad and deep, but yet so practical and important. So you all have heard me talk incessantly about the difference between striving and thriving. And Carol has the book and the framework to to get you there. So this discussion really gets at not just our uniqueness, which you all have heard me talk about, but Carol takes it to another level of our essence, which cannot be duplicated in any way. Oh, it's so good. Here we go. Hey, Carol, how's it going? It's great. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm excited about this. Uh, we've had a chance to chat a bit. We have some a lot in common and just I feel like you and I could probably spend an entire day together. Just At a minimum. Hashing out some stuff. But today we're going to focus and we're going to talk about a new book that you have coming out called The Regenerative Life, Transform Any Organization, Our Society, and Your Destiny. That's big, Carol. It is big. And it's all in one system so that you can see that there is a framework that actually works at all three of those levels. You personally, a society, and an organization that's in that society and that you're in. So I think that's what makes it fun. And, and when you say it that way, it makes sense because we're really talking about a framework for humanity because humanity yeah. is about our families, our careers, our communities. That's what connects us, right? Yes, absolutely. Now, this is not your first rodeo in launching books out into the world. So give us a little bit of how this work came to be. Is this the conglomeration of a lot of these other books that you've done that have kind of formed this framework? How did you get here with this? Well, it's, um, as my mother would say, it started probably when I was about five, but we won't go back that far. <laughs> um, my career, although I have a hard time, it's like you said, life, work is all the same, started with being a professor and looking at organizations and becoming incredibly frustrated, knew that I politically couldn't even survive in that kind of system. But I had learned a lot by created a couple of businesses of my own. I have sold one of them. Uh, the other one, um, I kind of handed off to some other folks. But I learned so much in those two about running a business that was powerful and whole that I began to uh, take my education work and educate inside organizations. And I felt like I needed to write a book about that first one, which was the responsible business. And it was all about fairly large businesses. I was working with Google, Colgate-Palmolive, P&G, a few smaller ones. But I had a lot of people say to me, well, those are big companies. What about me? And so the first one was all about how you looked at an ecosystem. The second one was a responsible entrepreneur, 
for smaller businesses and how those smaller entities can transform social systems, governing systems, cultures, all from the way they run a business. And then I had a lot of people say to me, but we live inside of the people who are trying to think well, like make a difference, but they are outdated in how they design work. I go to work every day and I feel like I'm living in the at least 20th century, probably 19th and 18th century. And I know you do all that work in corporations. Why don't you put it in a book? And so I created the third book, which was the name I always wanted to use, but my first publisher wouldn't let me. And I called it the regenerative organization, which was how do you have the essence of every individual come to life and match with the consumer and customer's life and their essence and the business. And out of that, create magic, right, for all those to be together. Okay. Now, inside of that third book, there was uh, one chapter, which is just crazy making. It's called the 30 Toxic Practices. And that chapter looked at over, I made a list of over 100, but I put 30 of them in a book that are archaic, ancient. They're literally thousands of years old, 200 years old, and we're still building businesses on them. And I took one of those and wrote a book about one of the 30 called No More Feedback. And it came out a little over a year ago. And now what I had were people saying, all right, you did some for big business. You did some for a little business. You did some for work design. You did something for uh, this one toxic practice, but you haven't done anything for individuals. You haven't done anything for a woman uh, or a man who is not the CEO where I had worked a lot, not the founder, but I'm one person in society trying to figure out how to have a life that really works. And so I decided I better do a little pulling my life together and make that book available. So it came about from trying to look at different windows on the things I knew rather than it, it's additive. Uh, and on carolsanford.com on the book page, I described those five books and how they fit together and help people choose what would really serve them. I tell you, when I was introduced to your work and I looked over at the three, the three things that really jumped out that resonated strongly with me that you've just talked about. One is that it's, it's built around what you write and teach about is built around people's uniqueness, that it is about what I call your unique gifts, talents, and abilities. The second thing you said that really resonates is I talk a lot about the industrial age model should have died a long time ago and it's lingered way too damn long. Yeah. Um, and we and we call it things like now we try to move into the age of technology, which is still industrial age, just using fancier words like it's maddening to me. And I love that you're writing about that. And, and then third, you have modeled what I help my clients see is I call it the breadcrumb trail of discovery in your life that you don't just come out of, you know, your high school education with this straight line path to your meaning and purpose in your, in this world, you got to be curious and kind of follow things around and try a little of this and learn a little of that. And that's really what you've done when people have said, Hey, Carol, do this. You go, okay, I'll go figure that out. Mm -hmm. Oh, you need to do that. Okay, I'll go figure that out. And the, right. the cumulative, cumulative factor of that is making a huge difference for people because you've allowed yourself to be curious and follow that around. 
Right. And let me add a couple of things to that. You're right. There are some overlaps. I come at some of them in a very specific way that may be helpful. Uh, one is I knew most of that when I was fairly young. I had not written a book about it. I had been doing it as an educational format like you have. You put it into workbooks and things. And I, what I did is went around and looked at another window. I grew like crazy in doing that, but I wouldn't say I was figuring it out so much as I had a sense of some large thing and how it all fit together, but to articulate that into a book and the process you use is. So that's still a breadcrumbs thing. I think it was the metaphor of figure out, which was a little strange. The other thing is I really differentiated, and we can play with this a little, between essence and uniqueness. because uniqueness tends to be, um, you may not be the only one who has that uniqueness. Essence, you are absolutely the only one that ever did have. Nature doesn't duplicate. And it comes from when you are, I mean, maybe before you're born, but certainly it can be seen when you're very young. It is that which if everything else was taken away and that was taken away, you wouldn't be you anymore. Uniqueness usually is seen in the world, what you're doing, what you're producing. Essence is how you literally see the world, how you frame the world. So I'm going to give you an example of me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Um, if you, uh, I mean, we could talk about all the things I've done, and I'm incredibly productive, we could say. I produce podcasts and books, and uh, I produce events. I have so many things that I create, but my essence, if one aspect of it, there are usually three, but one aspect of it is to destabilize certainty, which I just did a little with you, but when people are working with me, they get a whole lot of it. So don't be so certain that uniqueness is the way to look at it. And I don't care what people come out with. I'm not trying to sell what I do, but I'm trying to open a door. And I have done this since I was five years old. And that's why my mother, since we knew, noticed it when I was five, because I got punished repeatedly for disagreeing with people. I got locked in a closet by my father for hours. And one time he forgot me. Because I disagreed so strongly with something that I was sure he wasn't right about. And that is so core to me that executives gain so much from just having me sit in the room and disagree with them. Because it is a destabilizer that causes them to question. And so that shows up in a lot of things. But my personality is kind of energetic, uh, productive, creative, articulate. And you could list those as strengths. But they don't matter unless they're being applied from my essence, this destabilized certainty. I am off being somebody else somewhere else. Can you feel that difference between essence and uniqueness? I love that so much. Because as you said, you could take everything else away, but that's, that's who you are. Yeah. And you can learn other things that oh, yeah. make you better at it or maybe right. hinder it. But it's always, even if you lock your in your closet, it's not going away. It, you can't take that away from you without killing the being body that I'm in. And so, and, I, and you described it as nature doesn't duplicate. Right. And I love that. I'm always bringing my clients back to nature examples because those are the most fundamental that we can ever look at as models from for our lives. And I love this essence so much. 
Thank okay, you for introducing so, it to us. Can, yes. I, can I disrupt two other things you just said? Yes. I can't yes. Not do it. Sorry. No, right. absolutely. The first Go. one is I don't use nature models, although I did say that I use living system models. So let me tell you the difference. Okay. Um, if we go use nature as a model, we are taking something that is very incomplete compared to how a human works. I can't decide how a leaf cleans itself, although I know there are people who do that, because leaves are different in every uh, watershed or life shed. And if we're trying to get a model, we flatten it, we make it abstract. And Elon Musk has said to us over and over again, and I've said this, but I wasn't famous, which is don't try and use a, a nature process, look at an entire living system. So humans exist in a natural system and we exist in a larger life shed, but we are nested in that. You want to look at all of it working so you get the richness, the complexity. And that, I, that's part of what I teach people how to do, how to learn to think that way. The other thing I'd like to disrupt, and then I want to hear what you're doing with all this, um, is the idea of ever having a model. Models mean this is the answer, and you even, I think, called said I had a, a role model possibility, or I try never to role model. Just think about it, what it does to somebody else's essence to say, copy me, right? That's the model. Models are for model airplanes. What you want is each individual uniquely being able to discover who they are and use frameworks to get smart. I was just going to say, I, I wish I would have said framework because that's I really what I meant. Well, I, 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 I absolutely wholeheartedly agree with that. Yeah. I love this conversation so much. I can't stand it. Yeah. <laughs> but it, most people, I had a guy, I did a lovely guest podcast yesterday and he said, so if we really wanted the future work well, what's the model you would do? So I said, I'd make sure we destroyed all models. And he said, I don't understand. And you know, I, I said to him, they are answers, which are templates, which replicate, but they don't have anything to do with the, the essence being discovered and created for itself. And he said, but what if you can't get people to go fast enough? I said, the fastest way in the world to move change is connect with essence and then educate people on how to work with that. Preach. Amen. I love that. Okay. Well, okay. Let me, I want your perspective on this. So, I often say, here's my framework, and my role is to just hold, use the framework, but hold up a mirror so that you can see yourself more reflective of the way that we see you and how to use that, what you call essence. I had previously called uniqueness, which now I feel like I need to retire completely because you give <laughs> no, me they're a whole, different No, my whole mind is blown. I love it. So, how, so is that, when you say framework, is that how you would say to no. use a good framework? Good. Okay, tell me. All right. <laughs> First, I don't want your mirror of how you see me. I don't want to see me as you see me. I want to see me as I am that probably nobody else can, although all the 360 degree feedback, part of which Covey did for years too, is a process that undermines my ability to see myself. I want you have in our framework. I'm going to give you an example of a framework. And okay. I have I have them in every book that I'm in, uh, I use, but because they help people ask questions as, and discover versus get answers. So one framework that I use in this book for essence is something about what is it about how you process the world, what is you try and produce in the world, and what value you bring into the world that no one else could do. And I put it on a triangle, okay. a process, a purpose, and a value. Now, 
every essence is composed of those three. So my process is destabilize certainty, right? Now, okay. if what I'm doing is every person, and I do essence reveals as part of my work, uh, because it is not easy. It's not something people can learn to do. And when they're first looking at themselves, it's incredibly hard. But I use it to formulate questions live in real time. I don't have a set of questions. So if we were going to say, Rebecca, what is your essence? I would start to ask you for stories of your life in critical ways. I would pick and nitpick and get down into what's behind that, behind that, what was driving your thinking, and do that over many different events. And I would find a thread that so underpins your process that it cannot be denied. You would not get to those words because you'd use external words, personality words. You wouldn't be able to hear the kind of process. But that framework allows me to hear you and ultimately allows you to see you with you having revealed it, not me. Not my mirror, but your ability yes. to see yourself. I have, I use frameworks for strategy. Here's how to do strategic thinking regeneratively. How does that to do leadership? And under that, there are hundreds of them. And they are designed to supplant mental models. They are designed out of how living systems work when they're alive and moving and dynamic. Now, all that sounds insane, and people have no idea what I'm talking about, but that is the way to learn to think systemically. And so I'm actually educating executives and individuals on how to think systemically using living system frameworks. Did that help or make it worse? It just lights my brain on fire. I love it. And I've always felt and don't know how to articulate it well, that what I call the industrial age models that we're living yeah. off of and, and the language that we're using is such a lazy way to try to articulate work. And it, and it really is oftentimes just trying to make it easier for the leader to manage a bunch of people yeah. instead of really seeing who they are and how to utilize um, their essence and your words um, to fuel the story of the organization, the money-making model, so that you can do great work and honor humanity. And, and you're right. And when you try to have that conversation in an industrial age audience, you do get some, are you crazy? But I believe that these conversations that you and I want to start are the future. Yeah. I believe that, that, that we've, the stress we feel, the World Health Organization has labeled burnout as an epidemic. Yeah. Our children are feeling the, the impact of needing to be in a success-driven culture that just puts them into these industrial age boxes while, while opportunity is richer and broader than it's ever been. And I believe that time is running out on that industrial age conversation. And while people look at us as crazy now, there will come a day when they'll be forced to see that this is the future. If anyone would be interested, you might even be a person who is, I have a, a lecture I did at the University of Washington as part of a program I was running there uh, that is the eras of work design. And there, it goes all the way back to the, what I call the ordained era, where kings, mostly kings, few queens, uh, the pope or head of a church, the military determined what was true, and we still are doing much of that, and that is hundreds of years old. That's not 200 years old, the Industrial Revolution. It is older than that. That's why we have hierarchies, because we had kings. 
Then I go forward and look at the craftsman era and then the, the two industrial revolutions and then the be machine, which created machine era and then the uh, behavioral era because rats were introduced and a huge percentage of what we use now, incentives, rewards, recognition, all come out of the study of rats in the 1920s, transferred to humans and humans are not rats. Unless you manage rats, then it's really good. And I know then a couple I'd call a rat, but I know what yeah, you're saying. Right. right. <laughs> And then the human potential era, which brought, said we're not rats, but it started creating ideas and imposing them on people. I believe that the current era that I am speaking about designing our way into is what I call the evolved capacity era, which is the era, era of where every piece of work we do is to create increased capacity in the other to express their own essence into the world. Not to show them what to do, not to train them, not to give them the answers, not to facilitate, but to help them have the thinking capacity, the personal being capacity, that they can do the work, know what their essence is, and make that happen. I've got a, a v, on Vimeo, under Carol Sanford's Vimeo account, I've got a series of lectures, but one of them is about work design and the eras of work design. Because the real problem we have is we keep working on this problem of the industrial age way of working through leadership. And it's not a leadership question. It's literally a work design. We have designed work in a way that it requires all this supervision and so forth. So I have, I, I am an old lady. I am getting closer to 80 than I am to 75 now. And I have done this for 40, almost 45 years now. And I started redesigning work systems really quickly because I could see it. That's the regenerative business about how to do that. But until we undo some of those, as you're saying, those old paradigms that go back to the Industrial Revolution and beyond, back into the ancient 16th, 17th century of kings and queens, we can't change. We can't just stop that stuff. We've got to completely reimagine it. Okay, three things. Yeah. One, I wish you were my neighbor because I would literally go to your house every day with coffee or wine and say, talk to me. Like this lights me up. Number two, I'm looking at you. I can't freaking believe that you're on closer to 80 than so you're doing life right somehow because you look amazing. Yeah. And three, I believe that one of the things that keeps us completely stuck in this, and I agree that we need to redesign work because the burnout report from the World Health Organization oh, yeah. points to the way work is structured and, and it, everything you're talking about would alleviate so many of those burdens and, and stresses that people feel. But I believe what keeps us mired more than anything is that our education system is yeah. built on an industrial age model. Yep. And so now you've got th these students who are more evolved than their parents and their grandparents in terms of their information and their, and their ability to process information. And they're, they're, they're put in this system yeah. that does not honor any of that. In fact, it suppresses it in a way that now we wonder why people, why these kids are, are, are their mental health is struggling. It's because yeah. the systems they're put in are repressing their ability to be who they really are. But we want to say that they're, they're struggling because they have an iPhone. Like it literally drives yeah. me insane. Yep. Okay, now you've lit me up and I'm ranting on my own podcast, okay. Carol. Thank you. I love it. I love it. I want people ranting. We should be ranting yes. about this stuff. 
So there are a couple of things you're sparking in me um, as a result of this. I absolutely agree. I think it starts with parenting before education because I think we have had so many systems created originally sometimes in the military transferred to business, business into education, education into parenting. So most of the stuff we have around how, rat, how schools work or how rats work. They come with where you incentivize kids, you reward kids, and they don't have any ability to think for themselves whatsoever. Um, in fact, I, they get in trouble when they think for themselves. Exactly. Their grades go down. My kids never went to traditional. One of them, one, one set, my birth children were involved in a school which had multiple grades together. It was a public school in Palo Alto, California, and it ran through the sixth grade. But after that, they didn't have it. But by then, they hadn't been destroyed. Uh, I raised my children in such a radically different way. And I write a lot of that story in the new regenerative life under parenting and telling the stories of how my grandfather engaged with me and I got to many of the ideas I have, which have to do with creating more self-initiation. So my kids, starting when they were six, were asked, what role would you like to have in the household? And by the time they were nine, they took a whole household role. My daughter took on paying all of the bills and managing all the finances at nine years old. I was no good at it, so thank God she picked that, right? And my son decided he wanted to feed us, and he learned about how to be healthy. They had a whole lot to learn. We nearly starved to death. I mean, a lot of it was to struggle, but they were in charge of that. That didn't mean they had to do it all. They had to engage us, and we reflected using your first concept. They reflected on what they were learning, what they wanted to do, what help they needed. And we were in a community of connection doing that. So until we get back to children being involved in that way, we can't parent correctly. We can't educate correctly. And then all the work systems we have are just sweeping that stuff forward out of those old eras. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I tried to start a charter school eight years ago and, and oh. got through two rounds of approval in the mayor's office and actually pulled out of it because I just could tell that it was a system that was going to send me over the edge oh. and I didn't want to go to jail for losing my, you know, what. <laughs> so, but one of the things that I learned in that when I was interviewing parents about would you send your child to my school is the way that people process information about education is the same way they process information about anything else, which is emotion versus facts and logic. Yeah. And, and so there were so many conversations that really led me to this belief that I now have is that as parents, our kids are such the core heart of us right? The, the responsibility to raise these kids is so important and so weighty that we have to find beliefs, whether they're true or not, to get us over that uncertainty of whether this kid's going to work turn out or not. Yeah. And so one of the beliefs that we've bought into, which is not at all the truth, is that if my kid gets good grades, goes to a good school, then I can say I was a good parent. Because we have no other reliable means to say whether you're doing it right or wrong. But there is no validation in that statement. There is no correlation between my kid got good grades and they became wealthy, healthy, successful, happy, any of that. None whatsoever. But it's right. this belief. And so parents go out into the neighborhood parties comparing to each other about their kids' grades and accolades. And I just want to just blow this whole thing up. I, I'm always saying, you know, there is no normal, right? Normal is just something y'all made up to make yourselves more comfortable. Right. Like it doesn't exist. 
And I, like you, parented differently. And it was not always easy because society wanted to give me some shit about it sometimes. And you have to be able to stand tall in that story to say, you know, when my kids say, hey, I don't think I'm going to school today. And I say, okay, great. What, you know, what, what's the, you know, talk to me about that. And I didn't say, yes, you have to go to school. I wanted to hear what they were thinking. What were they planning? And, you know, sometimes they would realize, you know, they would say to me sometimes, well, I think I'll go in at about 10 o'clock. I just want to sleep in tomorrow. And I'd say, great. How are you getting there? Well, what do you mean? Well, the bus comes at 7.30 and I'm going to work at 8. So at 10 o'clock, you're going to need to find a ride. So if you can find a ride at 10 o'clock, that's great. And then they'd have to go back and think, well, crap, what's my new strategy? You know, I... So I, you have give, you asked me to give an example in the book. I'm going to use you as an example right now, one of the roles in the book, because you just demonstrated the essence of parenting. All right. So in the book, if, if you'll allow me, there yes. are nine roles. Three of them are the initiator roles that are foundational to society working, to your life working, to organization working. Three that are related to manifesting, making something happen in the world. And three, they're destabilizers that don't let us get attached. On the initiator side, the first one is parent. And I don't mean necessarily you birth children. I have been a parent to what I call acquired children. They work foster, but they can't. I ended up with a bunch living with me for long periods of time who were my friends, friends of my children. Uh, stepchildren, uh, I worked with, well, long story, and then some of mine, but the essence, what you want to do when you're in one of these roles, in each chapter of these nine roles, says, what's the essence of that role? So the essence I have of parenting has those same three aspects. What's the core process? What is the core of what you're producing and the value? The core process is enabling self-determination, right? Love it. And if our children can't do that, they will be subject to peer pressure. They will always be determined by what's outside. You giving them the reins of saying, all right, this is great. Now figure all this out. Works incredibly young and very quickly. The second aspect, which you demonstrated, uh, is the ability to do essence expression. And you, this is partly what we talked about before we got on this call, but having artistic children who may not meet the standards of what uh, the SAT scores or anything I know, don't get me started, right? Yes. Uh, ha- may have nothing to do with their, their essence. If you've got artists in the family, that is their essence. And you, I have a granddaughter like this. I watched her play with a bunch of stuff starting when she was six years old that were scarves and put them on. And I said, and they were beautiful. And I said, Sylvia, would you like to make your own clothes? And she nearly went insane. We started figuring out how for her to design, how for her to sew. Uh, and then she had done that round. And then we started doing another round of something we can see. As it shows up, you're helping her find her essence. So I have stories just like that in the book of the nine people who played those roles. But you're a great story. Well, and you think about how often these artistic kids that their essence really is rooted in this and that's who they are. My son and daughter both have artistic essences, I believe. I'd love to send you to yeah, kids. They have different ones though. Yeah. 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 Right. Very oh, they're very different, trust me. Yeah. But I how many times that parents say to these artistic kids, Well, you've got to get a real job. 
that's an interesting hobby. Like nothing sends me over the edge quicker than hearing yeah. that statement. I agree. I agree. Um, one of the things that you said is, you know, if I were your next door neighbor, which I agree would be great fun. I have created a way for people to be in these conversations ongoingly with me. Um, I, it's called change agent development, where people from around the world, I've got people who are joining change agent communities, and I always call them communities and make them into communities because you can't do it without being community. So I've got a group in Australia and New Zealand. We do it all online. I don't have to fly down there. Uh, 90% of them I've never met. Um, and over the years, they're learning how to think this way and how to bring it into all their roles. I've got another group in Europe, which started a few universities I was teaching in, uh, and then now has become all the way into the Middle East and Africa, again, online. And we go online about eight times a year, introducing some thinking about how people can work with it. They play with it, break out groups, and then they go out of the world. And I've got a, several hundred in the U.S. So when you do that kind of thing, you're creating communities and seeding them. I even call it seed communities around the world. So you, everybody has a neighbor like you who is looking for a way or they know how to build it. Um, so I think that's a beautiful aspiration, the thought that you're next door to someone. And, and if you can't be next door physically, why not be on? And nowadays we can do online communities and we don't even have to get on an airplane. Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm going to Google that as soon as we're done and see how I can be a part of one of those. That's amazing. So I want to get back to the book because this yeah. is just fascinating and I'm so excited about it and you. So these nine roles that you teach in the book, you also took this concept and through action learning with a hundred people, I don't want to say tested it out, but you had people just go and, and do their own discovery. Yeah. And so the book is full of stories about those people, right? Well, yeah. So here's how we did that. People got online with me first for an hour. I introduced to them and they came in roles. I had a, a one group who was parents, one group who were designers, a whole group of educators and people who are what I call earth tenders. They are people who work close to the earth. They're building regenerative agriculture or they have some role that's trying to, to engage people with it. Each of those separately was online with me first for an hour just to be introduced to the essence of that role and how it plays out when it's regeneratively and powerful. The second thing I introduced to them was how do you get in your own way, what I call the energy drains or the inner obstacles. And I had them journaling. I gave them a whole journaling process, which is very different than just recording what went on in your day. It was designed to move you. And people kept a journal for a month and they came back. And they got online with me and they sent me in advance what their struggles struggles were. I created another little workshop for an hour. They gained some more. They went back out into the world. Then they joined a third time. But all this time, they are looking at the essence of this role and how they can play it out. The other thing I was trying to introduce to each of these nine groups was the idea of do not try to do it as a hero. That is a, I mean, when I was little, I wanted to save all the dogs in the world that got put in the pound, right? And I was going to figure out how to do that, be a dog lawyer. And I certainly, you know, I over time realized I, I was fighting uphill battles. I could do it by just these roles of how I lived in life. If I'm a different kind of parent, 
I can have children, which I don't have to worry about because they're going to create who they are and where they're going. If I am an economic shaper, I may end up being an economist or I may just be a consumer, but I engage in a way that I'm actually shaping an economy the way I thought it could work because I now understand what that role is about. Uh, or an entrepreneur. Uh, so I, in this process of working with people, had them understand that at different times they may play different roles. So let me give you an example. You wanted stories. I had this lovely uh, young woman who has a son who is two years old, and she had a business which was working with other parents to try and help them, like you're talking about, play with their children differently. And she had a public place they could come, and she would engage with kids, and the whole process was really fun. But she said, I always feel like I just keep doing this and think they'll get it from watching. I said, well, what if the role you needed to add was educator? And so you aren't just doing your business teaching, you become an educator, or what you weren't even teaching, she was um, living it and allowing people to engage. When we taught her that the role of educator is really about discovery, self-discovery from an epistemology, a learning method that has people really be able to see into what really it is that's trying to be drawn out and the educator is really drawing out of another parent or a child or one of your folks or in one of your workshops or an executive like I'm working with. Your whole thing is to draw that out of people with a framework which allows them to see with new lenses. She changed completely how she was running her business and suddenly was attracting people like crazy. She'd barely been able to make enough money um, and, and mostly under the underwater too much. And suddenly she knew, ah, I need to, while I'm doing this business, take on the mantle of the educator. We then worked with her a little more on how she needed to become a better designer of processes, which is a different role, right? And designers are in everything from clothes to homes to processes to a podcast. You and I said before we started, we designed it a little bit, right? Well, I had a woman who is at Omega Institute, and she had really struggled with playing the role of designer because she kind of did everything. You know, she had many people working for her, but it was a real struggle to figure out how it is we design. And so we looked at that the, the, um, the core of designing is really about revealing that which is seeking to come into existence. It's already there. People are showing up. And what you have to design a process for that to happen. Now, that's easier said than done because learning how to design takes quite a bit of skill, but we, I worked with people on this about what is the master framework for designing. They, she went out back into Omega, began to involve her entire team in the design process, and in, created a whole system of where teachers could come and learn how to teach, where you can have executives look at how to have it play out in their um, organizations. And that process gave her so much power because she was no longer really the manager, which is what she'd been before, but instead she was a designer. And so seeing all these roles it takes a little work, but when you do it, shifts how you do any job title you have. Well, you mentioned you don't do it as the hero. So are each of these roles designed to be in, you know, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey language, are each of these roles designed to be a guide given the context and the situation? Well. 
I hadn't thought about that. I studied with Joseph Campbell. Um, you did? Yeah, I did. Oh, I was no. teaching at the University of San Francisco, and so was he. That's the advantage of being old, my dear. He was still alive. And I was very young, very, very young at that age. The way the hero's journey worked, and people forget, is it was always in a community. We have had, and I'm doing a little playing with it again on writing my novel, right, my first novel, uh, was the idea that you were supposed to overcome all obstacles and save the princess or whatever you were saving. It was usually a woman. Uh, and what I say instead is if I go back and look at the anthropological studies, even which Campbell used, it, that wasn't really quite what was true. The community usually overcame it and a group of people. And so for you to stop thinking, and I had, you wouldn't believe how many men I had in this study who said, I am exhausted from trying to be a hero as the founder of my company or as uh, a podcaster who is trying to change economic policy, uh, as a media kind of person. Uh, you know, all of these things are just exhausting. And when you said to me, that the real work to do in the non-heroic way is flawed. I am a flawed person, which Campbell had a bit of, but that it's not about me being a hero, but me living from the essence and engaging others so our community transforms it. Then we're not exhausted. We're not alienated. All of those things you talked about, those go away when you can be non-heroic because you're in community. And I call that the difference between striving and thriving, right? You get exhausted from the striving feeling like you're responsible for it all. And I see these nine roles. I see these nine roles as being the way that you could guide and help release and discover. I always think about my, my dad was a, is a a woodworker and And when yeah. he would, you know, he even back in the day would whittle, you know, or, you know, had, it was always messing with some, with wood in some way. And, and it was about what, what would he, what he, he peeled away to discover the beauty inside. And sometimes I think about my work and your work and the way that we do stuff. It's, it's what's inside. We just have to peel away some of the stuff to discover what's beautiful in there. Well, certainly, who was it uh, who created David? Leonardo da Vinci said, it's, David was inside that piece of marble all the time. I just had to get everything out of the way. I think it's a pretty good metaphor mm-hmm. um, to be able to reveal, that's the word I use, essence reveal, uh, core process reveal, all of those things are revealing something that is there. And that's the way, when I look at these nine roles and the way that you describe them, I think there are ways that you can guide to reveal given the context and the situation. Absolutely. I love that. I love that. Yeah, learning I'm, to be relevant to what's in front of you rather than a model or a template of what you're supposed to do everywhere. Well, and I think that speaks to, I, I talk often about context because I, yeah. I spent a lot of years working with training content and my role when I would go into a client to do work was not to show up and and tout the benefits of the content. I was there to understand the context. What Mm -hmm. are you trying to accomplish? How is this working? What's not working? And then sometimes my content was the right solution and sometimes it wasn't. But I look at how we interact in community and it is always about context. It's about what's the situation around me. The word context actually means to weave. What's the situation around me and how can I weave in my essence into what you need and what you find valuable so that together we we can live better in community? 
I think it's a beautiful way yeah. to look at the world. So my way of describing that, absolutely consistent with what you're doing, but I like to add frameworks that people then can uh, go into any situation and see. And I, I say that the thing we have to learn in the living systems view is everything is nested. So I, love that. I am nested and all living systems are you as a person are nested in a family or nested in a neighborhood, in a community, in a nation, in a watershed, on a, uh, uh, in a country, uh, on a hemisphere within a planet and some solar system. We can't hang on to all this too big, but we don't ask what our effect is and how we fit. So context for me is understanding the nestedness, me in that working. Mm -hmm. And if I have frameworks, which I teach people as a way to work, that have some assessing what's in front of them based on nested frameworks and seeing the world is alive and nested and interacting, like a tree. I mean, you were using nature before. If you just take a tree and try and understand it, most people instead say, well, limbs and leaves and roots and crown of the tree, right? A little mark here and there. Well, tree is really treeing. It's living. And it has systems which are moving water. It has a hydrological system. It has processes it engage with that have to do with squirrels and deer and humans who come in there. Unless you learn to see things and understand some ways what things are guiding, your word earlier, in a more powerful way, that which has less power but has a role, and that which is larger, like it's always every tree is in a forest and in a watershed, uh, of some sort, or life shed is a better word for it, because not just water there. But learning to see context is what I call learning to see nested systems at work. Oh my gosh, I am so fascinated by your work. I'm so excited that we met. We could do this for days. And we, and we have to end this podcast episode because people are probably arriving at work and they're going to be late for work because they don't want to turn off all the exciting things that you're sharing. So we're responsible for people being back in the industrial age model and being on time oh. to clock in. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> How's that for a first full circle moment? <laughs> full circle moment. I love it. Thank you. So let's give people some next steps. So they certainly yeah. should go out and buy your book, which is going to be coming out in a matter of hours and days by the time this comes out into the world, March and of 2020. There is a way to buy them in bulk so that you can end up with, in a book club with me. Um, and we have to do them through my publisher. They've made an arrangement. You can find all of that at carolsanford.com. And carolsanford.com has my primary podcast. It has my business offering. It has my books and how they all fit together. So there's, and there's blogs even on that site. So carolsanford.com. Um, and follow the links if you're interested in the bulk process. There's a thing on the bottom of that page that talks about the communities we talked about, CAD, Change Agent Development Communities for Individuals. Uh, so you can learn more about that wherever you are in the world. Um, and people do meet in community rather than just sitting one-on-one -on -one talking to be on phones. We try and get them to build a community nearby. Um, and so that's probably, and then the only other thing I can think of that might be immediately helpful is I have conversations like this with Zach Swartout, my co-host for Business Second Opinion. And don't be thrown by the fact that it says business, because as you can tell, this stuff works up and down. That's why the subtitle here is 
you know, any organization, our society in your destiny, you will learn how to do the kind of assessing that I'm doing because that's what we're teaching on there. And the way I do it is critique Harvard Business Review, one article and one idea at a time and give an alternative to the industrial model. I'm not going to get a single thing done for the next month because I'm going to be binging on this podcast, Carol. You might be responsible for tanking my productivity over the next no, month, no. but it's I, a good well, reason in, to. <laughs> internal locus of control. <laughs> oh my gosh. I am just lit up excited. So carolstanford.com gives people anything they need to know about what, where to go next. Pretty much. To stay engaged in this amazing conversation. Yeah, with me anyway. I mean, it's yeah. not things in life, but the, stay engaged with me. That's the best place to go. I love that. And I hope that you'll come back and we can revisit how the book's going and just continue this conversation. I have enjoyed it thoroughly. Well, me too. Thank you so much for inviting me and I would welcome a time to come back. Sounds great. And I'm not coming down. I told you. I told you it was going to be good. All right. So carolsanford.com is her website that has just tons of resources, links to talks that she's done, her previous books, um, lots of lots of amazing resources there. I've also included a link to Amazon to buy her new book, which I hope that we're all going to do immediately. And then I suggest that we have her back on the show and answer questions and dig a little deeper. Okay, one more thing that I'll ask of you today is, could you rate the podcast? How you doing? Are you liking it? Let us know. All right, y'all. Make it a great day. I'm not coming down. I never liked it on the ground. I'm not coming down.